Welcome to the Nemeth Report podcast. I'm Dr. Tammy Nemeth, energy historian, analyst, and consultant, and I'll be your host. Today, I'm really pleased to welcome once again to the podcast, Bob Lyman, a former federal government economist who is here to discuss the forced net zero energy transition in Canada, its costs, its implications, and the likelihood of a U-turn. Hi, Bob. It's great to see you again. Yeah, it's nice to see you too, Tammy. I'm, I'm looking forward to our talk. Yes, welcome to the program. Um, can I ask you to just take a moment to uh, introduce yourself to our audience who may be unfamiliar with your extensive career and expertise and what you're doing right now? Yes, certainly. Well, I spent uh, uh, over 35 years working as a, a federal uh, public servant in Canada. Uh, most of that time was spent uh, as uh, an analyst, advisor, and uh, manager uh, in areas that dealt with uh, energy, environment, and transportation policy issues. Um, I, uh, I retired from uh, my job in the federal government uh, in 2006, and I spent a little over 10 years uh, working as a, a private consultant, uh, uh, providing uh, consulting services to governments and industry. And uh, since that time, I have, uh, been spending quite a lot of my time writing and uh, advising on issues related to uh, climate change policy. Uh, I've been uh, uh, published, I've published almost 300 articles online with the Friends of Science and, and also with other organizations uh, in, the, in the UK and in the United States on this topic. Uh, so uh, it's uh, uh, my my perspective, if you will, then is that of a uh, an energy economist who worked for many years uh, trying to uh, bring the best possible approach to uh, public policy in this area. That's great. Thank you so much for that introduction. Um, I wanted to dive right into a recent presentation that you made to the Friends of Society, Friends of Science Society. And the title of it is quite provocative, where it's, when will climate policy hit the wall? And I think one of the, the fundamental elements of that is the concept of net zero. So how would you define net zero? And is that the official government of Canada understanding of the concept? Or is your concept a little bit different? Well, my concept is fairly close to that of the of the federal government. It is that uh, the uh, emission of greenhouse gases from the consumption of uh, energy sources that are based upon fossil fuels will essentially end by 2050, or if they are uh, cannot end, uh, that there will be uh, various ways implemented to offset those emissions either through uh, the use of uh, forestry uh, or land uses or through uh, the, uh, the capture and storage of emissions uh, in, uh, so that uh, they're not uh, issued into the atmosphere. So those, those various elements are, are present both in my understanding of the term and in the way that the Government of Canada officially defines it. Okay, that's that's awesome. Now, sometimes I think when we have these conversations, we throw words around and people aren't sure what precisely they mean, because if it's left open, I think people interpret that in their own way and it's not necessarily 
um, the same way that you're thinking about it or the government's thinking about it. So thank you so much for clarifying that. Now, as you pointed out, public policy is actually very political in the sense that public support is generally required for policy success. So once the loss of that support reaches a critical point, um, the policy will become, as you point out, politically untenable. And we've seen that in the past week or so with the sort of walk back a little bit of the carbon emissions tax um, that was on heating oil, or it's on everything, but it's been removed on heating oil for three years. And of course, that was a political decision because the majority of people who use heating oil in Canada tend to come from areas where um, they vote liberal. And they said, right. what are you doing? This is making our lives unbearable and expensive. So, you know, you need to do something. And so the something was they uh, suspended the, the, the carbon tax for three years and provided incentives for uh, heat pumps, I guess. So given the never-ending alarm that climate is, you know, in crisis and there's this push for urgency, what do you think it will take for the net zero trajectory to be reassessed or reconsidered? Well, that was the question that I had to ponder before my remarks in Calgary. Um, and there's no easy answer to that, I'm afraid. Uh, as a professional economist, I approached it from the perspective of costs and benefits. Uh, that is, I tried to, to contemplate what would be the magnitude of the financial and economic costs that uh, would uh, be so high that uh, the Canadian public would uh, react against them strongly and vote out of office, the people that were responsible for imposing these costs. Um, and those were those, those costs essentially relate to the costs of the uh, taxes that are imposed upon energy use and, and services. It relates to the loss of income from investment in the energy industry and increasingly from the other uh, energy uh, intensive industries. Uh, it relates to the uh, significant uh, loss of uh, foreign markets for, for our manufacturing industry uh, and for, for other industries that are affected by these policies. And um, it seemed to me that at some point, those costs would get to the point where they, they so far exceeded any reasonable estimate of what the, the global environmental benefits of emissions reductions would be, that, that the public would react against that. Uh, I, I added to that consideration of economic and financial costs one other dimension, and that is the uh, kind of a, a loss in the credibility of climate policy within Canada, which is based upon the thesis that the actions that we take will somehow stimulate a reduction in emissions in other countries, and uh, that those emission reductions in other countries will be so large that they will uh, effectively uh, end the, the threat of, of, uh, of global warming. Um, the, um, what I focused on there was the fact that the uh, developing countries are demanding more than $2 trillion a year in climate aid, that is, that is aid to allow them to uh, mitigate and then adapt to 
climate change starting in, in 2026 from, to be received from the uh, wealthier countries. And the wealthier countries have basically said that they're not going to do that. I see no prospect whatsoever that at COP28 uh, that's coming up at the end of this month, uh, there'll be any movement on that. And, and because of the, of the requirement in the uh, uh, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change that uh, the uh, countries of the, develop, you know, of the developing world uh, must be satisfied uh, in order for them to under undertake the emissions reductions that are required, that means that, that uh, there will be no global uh, attainment of a net zero objective. Uh, and, and the more that Canadians and people in other OECD countries become aware of that, I think the, the, the more there will be a loss of credibility. Uh, now, all of that is the, the, the kind of, if you will, the perspective of a professional economist. What I was not anticipating was something that came completely out of left field, which is what you just mentioned. Um, in other words, Canadians um, did not react to the loss of billions of dollars in economic well-being. They reacted to the, to, uh, the sense of unfairness that came because <laughs> one, one group of uh, people heating their homes in winter with oil were getting a tax break. And nobody else was, and and so it's it's kind of it's it's interesting because it it tells you a lot about what really affects politics of almost any issue. Uh, it's not the grand uh, issues that you know the professional economists and politicians and even historians uh, try to 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 uh, put across to the public. It's the things that the average person just finds to be uh, unfair. And, uh, and so I, I, the more I think about this, the more I think that what will ultimately uh, change the course of events will be a feeling on the part of the public that it's just not fair. So uh, that's my That's a view. good point, because if you think of what Canada contributes to, if in terms of carbon dioxide emissions to the, the global mix, you know, there's lots of numbers bandied about. I think it's probably around 1.5%, right. um, which is infinitesimal, really, in the global scheme of things. And they're told that it's a global problem. But if your global contribution is negligible, then is it fair to upend your entire economy, make your, your public um, poor, and freeze and not have reliable electricity and not have reliable energy. Is that fair? And if Canadians are truly concerned about fairness and things being applied equally across Canada or the globe, then this should motivate them to say, hey, wait a second, why are we doing this? Why are we upending everything that works and replacing it with stuff that doesn't work and making everything more expensive when it's not actually not going to do anything and it what we're contributing is infinitesimal in the grander scheme of things. It, it, fairness is always, of course, a question of comparison, right? You know, you, you one looks at how someone else is being treated or whether it's being treated better than you are or worse than you are. Um, and uh, in this case, it's not just a matter of Canada having only 1.5% uh, of the emissions. It's the fact that the, the developing countries now constitute almost 70% of the world's emissions yeah. and it's constantly growing. And China alone 
represents 30% of global emissions, which is almost as high as all of the OECD countries put together. Yeah. So when when you compare those two things, you know, the the, the very heavy burden that's being placed on the, the countries that offer a small share of emissions and 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 the relatively light burden being placed on countries like China. Um, I, th I think the the equity or fairness issue will be thrown much more into 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 light. Yeah, I I would hope so. I, are you concerned though about? So Canada has in, been introducing all of these different policy initiatives um, that's continually layering on more and more costs, a cost burden for Canadians. Um, are you worried or concerned at all about normalization, where if you know, you Canadians get used to paying more for things that eventually they'll just kind of go, well, I've, I've factored that into, into my household budget now. Um, I guess I have to live with less energy. Do you, is there any concern there for that type of normalization? Well, I, th I think in many ways, the, the, the federal government and the way that it's designed the carbon tax system has, has relied upon a process of normalization occurring. In theory, um, if you were designing a, a carbon tax system, you would set the rate at a level which was required in order to uh, either reduce the emissions globally by your your, your target or, or to reduce emissions by, by a domestic target. Uh, and the, in Canada, we haven't done that. The government just decided to ratchet up uh, the level of the tax progressively over the years at a level essentially determined by their own judgment about what would be politically acceptable. So it wasn't related to the, the, the ultimate goal of, of the carbon tax system at all. And to, it, to a large extent, that strategy has worked because even though we're now paying a, the equivalent of $65 per ton uh, in carbon taxes on Canada, uh, it, it, that has occurred at a time when the, the changes in international oil prices have been so high because of geopolitical uh, and military events that it kind of gets buried. I yeah. don't think that, that that will continue though. I mean, when you, when you have placed yourself on a path to, to getting the uh, taxes up to $170 per ton by 2030 um, and stated that your goal is the complete elimination of greenhouse gas emissions, which cannot be achieved at, at a, a tax level of less than $300 per ton, um, then you, you've placed yourself in a situation where the public will undoubtedly begin to, to really feel the pinch. Yeah, for sure. Um, I wanted to just kind of tie into a history question because um, in my historical res research, I've investigated and written about the National Energy Program. And that was uh, this massive energy policy that was introduced by the Liberal Party um, and Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre, in 1980. And it brought federal micromanagement into the oil and gas sector like never before, with a myriad of new regulations, incentives, subsidies, expropriation in some cases, and taxation. And you said in your in your presentation that the net zero climate policies being pursued by the Liberal Party under Justin Trudeau make the NEP, and I'm quoting here, look like a kindergarten exercise by comparison, end quote. 
Can you elaborate on that? How is net zero worse than the National Energy Program? Well, I have, I'm so long in the tooth that I was actually <laughs> working in, in Natural Resources Canada or its predecessor, which was then called Energy Mines and Resources during the National Energy Program. And, and uh, I have my very own uh, original copy of the NEP signed by Mark Lalonde and in, in, in grateful uh, oh my gosh! Really? <laughs> comments about my role in it. So I, 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 I've been there, as it were. Um, the National Energy Program was basically about three things. It was about uh, trying to uh, control the price of uh, oil uh, and, to a lesser extent, gas that Canadians paid by imposing uh, price controls. It was about um, imposing regulations uh, and using other mechanisms that would Canadianize the, the Canadian industry, that is, increase the level of Canadian ownership and control and, and reduce that of foreign ownership and control. And uh, it, it was about um, trying to uh, introduce regulations uh, and subsidies, as you say, essentially to uh, provide uh, increased incentives for the production of alternatives to oil uh, and, and to increase energy efficiency. So that, that was what the National Energy Program was all about. And as you say, it was uh, a very comprehensive program uh, and it, was, it had its primary uh, adverse effects upon the oil producing provinces, that is oil from Alberta and Saskatchewan. The, the present and proposed measures that are being undertaken as part of Canada's climate change policy now are ones that don't just deal with oil. They affect all um, hydrocarbon sources. So it's oil, natural gas, and coal. Um, and, and those three sources together represent 73% of our total um, energy consumption. It's, it's far more pervasive in terms of its, of its scope than yeah. the National Energy Program was. Um, and, and the government actions that are being taken also uh, are far more intrusive in terms of the, the use of central planning uh, on energy uses. Uh, there's no question that there were regulations passed to increase energy efficiency, but they didn't affect every single uh, appliance, you know, every possible use of, uh, of hydrocarbons in the economy the way the, um, the current program is. Uh, and the it, banning it, of things also, like the, like now there's all this banning of stuff like banning yes. the internal combustion engine, banning uh, natural gas in in new homes and all this kind of thing. So yeah, it's like yes. that's that's a big difference. And and it's banning with a sense of urgency. Right. I mean, it, it's not just saying we're this is the goal and we'll eventually get there. It's saying that we have we must get there by 2050. Um, and in fact, we must get a significant way there by 2030 um, and then a setting a setting of five-year plans you know and typical of, of a you know the soviet union and, and you know it's it's uh, central planning uh days is, and so i mean it, it's the the um the number of public servants that are going to be required to administer this this massive amount of regulation just will dwarf anything that happened during the National Energy Program. And the adverse effects will be felt right across the country. 
not just in the in the oil and gas producing provinces, but right across the country. So, so the uh, the size of the effects and the geographic scope of the effects is, in my mind, far uh, broader than what occurred in the National Energy Program, and, and we haven't really seen it yet. We're in many ways, we're still closer to the beginning yeah. than we are to the end of the uh, the climate policy measures. Uh, it it's. Uh, I mean, as they say, $65 per ton is the tax now, but, but it'll go to 150. Uh, right in, in, in terms of regulations, uh, we haven't even begun to regulate the requirement for minimum levels of, of uh, sales of internal combustion engines. Uh, and, and that'll start in, in, in 2025. And, and by 2035, in theory, you will not be able to buy uh, an an internal combustion light duty vehicle in Canada. So that's uh, that's an unprecedented change in my opinion. Right, um, on the issue of regulation. So um, what, what sort of regulation changes, regulatory changes have been introduced so far to force the net zero transition? It's an almost unlimited number. It's quite, <laughs> it's, no, it's quite striking. Um, um, every two years, the Government of Canada submits to the United Nations a report on the emission reduction measures that it has undertaken. And every year, uh, the list grows longer. It's now well over 400 programs that have been... Oh, my gosh. Yes, by the federal and provincial governments. Um, and it grows every year. Um, and, and further, um, there's, no, there's no costing of it. There's no assessment given uh, of the cost cost benefit, you know, the, the benefits to be achieved by all of these programs. There's no assessment of the degree to which they overlap and duplicate with one another. So keeping track of it is extremely difficult. And trying to understand what the the marginal effect of any any single measure is or any new measure is, is, is almost impossible because they're, as I say, the, the overlap and duplication is so great. Um, Probably the most significant ones that have been introduced to date have been in the area of electricity generation and um, and just the beginning of, of uh, uh, regulations applying to automobiles and appliances. The electricity uh, regulation that's been passed by the, the federal government will require that uh, as by 2035, uh, there will be no longer be any um, hydrocarbon generated electricity in Canada. So it'll all be done by uh, wind, solar, biomass, uh, hydro, and nuclear. Um, and um, that's, that's a significant change, particularly for provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan, and to a lesser extent, Nova Scotia. Uh, it's even somewhat significant in provinces like Ontario, which only relies on natural gas for about 6% of the generation. But it's an important six percent. It's the you know it's it's the backup there in, in, on the days when there's not enough renewable energy to to meet all the needs. So it avoids having that six percent uh, avoids the risk of, of brownouts and blackouts. So that's the biggest one. The the we're now in a, in a situation where of course we've got a requirement regulations that have been passed, which will uh, foresee the elimination of the sale of. Uh, uh, oil-based uh, light-duty vehicles, and uh, we're 
every year there is a larger and larger number of regulations passed that mandate uh, increased uh, fuel efficiency and, and emissions intensity standards for almost every appliance. Um, we've even moved into the area where we're, we're now uh, by 2030 going to require a significant reduction in the use of uh, nitrogen-based fertilizers in the yeah. agricultural industry. And um, the Canadian farmers have basically been saying, well, that will cause us to reduce our production and, and it will, will reduce our incomes as well. And that and that that's just by 2030. When you when you envisage where that will go by 2050, that'll be a significant impact on our food production. Uh, and 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 yet, you know, we're not going to stop eating. So we'll have to start importing the, the the food from other countries that don't have those restrictions in place. Um, the, the list goes on and on. It really is quite quite striking. And and uh, uh, as I say, I, I'm always. Wondering how in the world, I mean, one, one just general comment that just occurs to me, most of those regulations are being implemented uh, and will be administered in future by Environment and Climate Change Canada, an environment department. It's not an economic policy department. So they do not understand how any one sector of the economy works. They're, they approach it from a, either a scientific or an ideological perspective, and, and they don't take prisoners. So it, it, this is going to be a very difficult time for us. Yeah, that's an interesting point about that. It would ha it would all, it all has to sort of get run through the Department of Environment because it seems that the economy doesn't matter, the cost doesn't matter. All that matters is the amount of carbon dioxide emissions. The emissions is all that matters, and right. um, I know this is my little thing right now where. If you look at the changes that want to be made in the banking and the finance sector, it's all about emissions. It, it's no longer are you a credit risk, but are you a climate risk? Are you an emissions risk? And um, it's it's a little bit interesting and, and concerning, if I can put that mildly, that that this is the the trajectory and what's informing a lot of the decision making, that it's all of these other things and not what matters you know if the economy matters and whether people can put food on the table matters if they can heat their homes matters if they can have electricity on a reliable basis matters and it seems like this the way that these policies are structured that doesn't matter well if you'll forgive me i may have made this point in a previous interview that we've had but i um Throughout the many years that I worked in the public policy area, uh, the, the characteristic of good public policy was that it recognized that uh, we live in a, a, a multi-goal society uh, and that we need to find the optimal balance between our economic environment and social objectives. And uh, that, that notion of, of seeking optimality meant that there were inevitably trade-offs to be made. There were compromises. Right. Um, it was not ideological. It was it was analytical and it was public interest based. And we're not in that world anymore. We're <laughs> in a world in which carbon dioxide emission reduction is a ideological goal that overrides all other public interests uh, and all other considerations of cost. And, and that's that is very, very bad uh, basis upon which to plan your future as a country. For sure. Um, if I can move on a little bit as an economist, um, I know that 
that there are several economists out there who support the idea of a, theoretically, of a carbon dioxide tax, that this is somehow a, a way um, for the market to decide the whether or not we should continue emitting carbon dioxide if you if you put that that type of tax on it um if it's revenue neutral if it's applied equally and if it replaces other regulations and subsidies but as we've seen in practice governments can't help but meddle and they interfere so as i guess we've seen this last week has the Canadian carbon dioxide tax lived up to this theoretical ideal? And what precisely is it being levied on? I would say that the Canadian carbon dioxide pricing system, which is a term that the government used, bears absolutely no resemblance to the theoretical ideal. Um, it doesn't do any of the things that you mentioned in the sense that A, it is not, <clears throat> it's not a, a tax that is um, being administered um, equally across the country. It's not a tax, the rate of which is being set in, in relationship to the cost of uh, avoiding the, uh, the adverse impacts. Um, it's not a tax that is revenue neutral. Um, in fact, it, it, it's, uh, it's administered in a different way in almost every province. Uh, and it's a tax that that um, has become uh, so complex that very few people understand it. Um, the the um, let, let's just kind of revisit what what the nature of the tax is. For, for the most part, in most Canadian provinces, there is a a federal government applied tax, which is set uh, as we said previously at. at $67 per ton uh, and is scheduled to rise in steady increments until at least 2030. Um, but that is uh, not uh, administered in exactly the same way in every province. Um, there are exceptions in each case, and they were negotiated by the federal government on the basis on a political basis. The in the province of Quebec, they do not have a carbon tax. They have an emissions trading system which uh, they share with this with California. And under the emissions trading system, um, the, the, the price that of carbon uh, equivalent to the tax is set in in um, in marketplace uh, and um, in largely by by uh, political factors which set the, um, the supply of, the, of the, the permits that are available for sale at different levels. Until quite recently, they were much below uh, those prices were much below the, the rate of the rate of the Canadian carbon tax. Most recently, they have increased, and now they're about forty-six dollars per ton. Uh, but that's still well below sixty-five dollars per ton. And um, uh, unless the federal government intervenes for the foreseeable future, uh, Quebec residents will continue to get much lower taxes than any, any other province. Um, yeah. Coming back to the kind of the fairness issue, um, so. Um, I think um, it, it, there remains a perception that somehow we're, you're serving a, a kind of a political ideal. I guess one of the most important aspects of the, the theory is that um, 
the revenues that were received from the taxes would be uh, recycled back into the economy in such a way that it would actually stimulate the economy. And the way to do that, in theory, again, is by lowering the rates of other generally applied taxes, like the HST, for example. Um, but the federal government didn't do that. What, what they decided to do was to give a set of rebates, um, which, and again, differ by province. And those rebates um, were designed specifically to go predominantly to lower income groups and to Aboriginal groups. So instead of putting in place a, a rebate system that would uh, exactly match and, and recycle the funds that were being received and would do so in a way that would stimulate the economy, what the, the, the Canadian federal government has done is to put in place a system uh, that is politically popular because it, it gives more money to lower income people, but it continues to give very high rates to the, uh, the to the others and to rates that are much higher in the, the provinces that have uh, oil and gas intensive economies than, than the others. Um, there was a, there was, was a recent study done uh, by uh, the Parliamentary Budget Office, and, and they estimated that the, uh, the, the cost to an, an average Alberta family of the, the carbon tax is now about $710 a year after taking into account the rebates, and about $468 a year in Ontario after taking into account the rebates. So it, wow. it's, it's not revenue neutral, and it's not at all... Um, designed in such a way as to improve economic efficiency. It just is not what, what it claims to be. <laughs> and I think what's interesting, you mentioned um, that it should replace the HST, but in fact, the, um, the federal government charges the goods and services tax or the GST on the carbon tax. So, <laughs> which, which I, I'm, I'm flummoxed because it's like, it's neither a good it's not a service, and yet they're charging a goods and services tax on on another tax. It's crazy. Well, they've long done that on in, in the case of excise taxes on gasoline as well. And, and uh, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation has long complained about the fact that the, the GST or HST, depending upon which province, uh, is a tax on a tax. Um, <laughs> so what what are the economic impacts so far of not just the carbon tax, but of all of the sort of regulations and policies that have been put forward in this forced net zero transition in Canada. Uh, what's the cost to Canadians? What are the consequences of transforming and restructuring the Canadian economy in this way? Well, of course, as I mentioned earlier, we're still fairly early days. So uh, the most adverse impacts have been on the province of Alberta and, and Saskatchewan. Uh, and uh, the, uh, I mean, in, in one year alone, or I should say over the period of 2017, 2018, there was uh, $100 billion in, in uh, new uh, projects, uh, trans transportation projects or production projects that were canceled as a result of, of, of carbon taxes. Uh, the, uh, and, and there's no question that as time goes on, we will lose more and more uh, investment in uh, our, our oil and gas industries and more and more investment in the industries that are emissions intensive. Uh, people tend to forget just how 
broad a category that is. And it's not just oil and gas, it's mining, it's, it's petrochemicals, it's steel, it's cement, um, it's uh, metal fabrication, automobiles, pulp and paper. These are, these are industries that are stood right across the country and each one of them is being adversely impacted by it. Um, I, I'm, I am a member of the board of directors of uh, the uh, Coalition of Canadian Manufacturers and Businesses of Canada, which are primarily small to medium-sized manufacturing enterprises. And um, half of the members have already moved their operations partly or entirely outside of Canada as a result of the higher costs that they're facing due to the climate policies, particularly wow. in the electricity area. Wow. That's already. The, um, the Fraser Institute uh, has done a fairly uh, good study of what the impacts will be by 2030. And um, and they're, I've got the number here, yeah, they're, they're projecting a 1.8% drop in, in gross domestic product by that, which doesn't sound like much, but it's about $1,500 um, uh, per year per employed person and a loss of about 184,000 jobs countrywide. Um, and that's that's after taking into account whatever benefits there might be in terms of increased employment in the, in the renewable energy industries. So it's permanent job losses of 184,000 across the country. Wow. Um, I tend to think that's an underestimate myself based upon what I've seen. Um, if, if, if think about it this way. Part of the, the objective is to completely shut down Canada's oil sands. I mean, Canada's oil sands are the third largest supply of oil in the world. Yeah. And they, and they the, the, um, the present value of the oil sands is, is somewhere in the range of six to $12 trillion. So we're going to shut that down. I mean, and no, no one has even attempted to date to, to cost that out because we don't know the time frame as to when it would occur. Uh, but it's, it's, it will fundamentally remake the Canadian economy. Yeah, which is not in a good way, I don't think. No, not in a good way. <laughs> not in a good way. I mean, the, the notion that somehow we're all going to be, you know, in this cold climate uh, uh, with our long winter days that somehow wind and solar is going to get it, allow us to get by is, is really quite humorous in a way if it wasn't so tragic. Well, do you think that that wind and solar and batteries and hydro, can we run the Canadian economy on that? Well, I mean, the, the answer is, is yes, given enough time and given enough money. Uh, but there's remember, there's two parts to the, to the question. The first part is, can we completely um, uh, convert all of our electricity generation to uh, non-emission non sources? Uh, and yeah, you, you can do that at a, at a tremendous cost. Uh, and then can you completely decarbonize your economy so that you are vastly expanding the demand for electricity services? And um, and, and, and finally, can you do that by 2050? Um, and the and, and the answer to, to all kind of, can you do that by 2050 is frankly, absolutely not. It cannot be done. Not, it's not possible in, in economic terms or in political terms. Uh, the, uh, I just saw recently a, a, an estimate of, of what it would take in terms of additional hydro projects that are the size of, of, of uh, 
the, uh, the, the largest ones that are now underway in Canada, which are in British Columbia and Newfoundland. Um, it would the the site C dam in British Columbia has taken almost 15 years to uh, to bring to fruition. It's still not finished yet, um, and it's the cost is now well. I, I, I don't know the exact number, but in the order of, of 15 billion dollars, um, we'd need 10 more of those uh, by 2050 to be able to uh, to have a hope of uh, attaining uh, you know complete decarbonization of our economy in all sectors, and that's. Those are not one is yet on the planning board, so it's not going to happen, and absolutely not going to happen. Right, and and with respect to hydro, I think that the best locations have already been utilized, and there's a limit to where you can put hydro, and then there's the environmental effects of damming rivers and whatnot, which affects the fish and all of these other issues, and. Yeah, so trying to get Aboriginal approval of that, uh, you know, consent and 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 uh, and all of that. Trying to to build the the long uh, transmission lines through areas that where people are are very sensitive about having no projects in their backyard. It's it's just it's simply not doable, uh, and I don't know why anybody even pretends that it is, but they do. Right, and and even with like the wind and the solar and the batteries, you need the the materials. Um, to produce those things and there exactly. are supply chain issues. There needs to be a massive increase in mining. We need way more copper <laughs> than, than we currently have and what's available. And, you know, there's not too many new mines coming forward. So there's lots of different bottlenecks and road roadblocks to actually fulfilling that the wind, solar, battery, hydro um, configuration, I guess, is one way to look at it. I, I noticed in your... Um, in your presentation that you, you broke it down into what the cost would be uh, per person in Canada. Um, and I'm trying to see if I can find it here because it was like, you, you know, if you're spending all of this money trying to transform the economy and push mm -hmm. pursuing all of these different sort of alternative energies, then that means there's less money to go into other things like hospitals, like schools like roads <laughs> and these other things that that canadians need and oh here it is um it, it works out to be about one thousand five hundred and forty dollars per employed person would be the effects of just the carbon dioxide taxes to 2030. yeah yeah no i i i I don't. I have not yet dared to come up with a, an estimate of what the cost <laughs> per per family, per household unit, or per individual would be over time. You know, it uh, many many times people have asked me, you know, what's the cost, and and I, I always kind of shake my head on that because it, you know, you're, it depends on which what you're talking about. The the Canadian uh, government um, estimates that it has, uh, it, it will cost about. Somewhere between 3.4 and 3.6 trillion dollars to attain uh, net zero by 2050. Uh, Ooh, the, that's low. <laughs> it is low. It is low. The the Royal Bank had, had an even lower estimate. They estimated two, $2 trillion dollars. Um, the um, the best the, there, there's been other estimates which have been done. McKinsey uh, has done a, a study worldwide of what it would cost to attain. Uh, net zero, and of course, these are all speculative numbers. Their their estimate uh, with respect to Canada is about five trillion. 
Uh, I, and I think all of those are are way too low. It, it, yeah. it's, there, there's no way of knowing it. Now, five trillion dollars is almost impossible to imagine in terms of the the uh, the impact on on the average citizen and the average family. It's uh, I think even three point six trillion works out to something like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars per per family uh, in Canada. Wow! Oh, wow! Oh, so. <laughs> That's that's crazy how much that would cost. But, you know, when the numbers are so big, it's hard to wrap your head around what's the actual implication for uh, a family or a household or an individual um, just because it's so huge. Um, now, so one of the arguments that I hear a lot is that Canada must do its part, that we have to set an example for other countries um, so that they too... That we have to get the ball rolling, I suppose, is one way of looking at it. That if if we do it and Europe does it um, and Australia does it, then all of these other countries will see how it is so great for us. And then they, too, will jump on the bandwagon, countries like China and India and other countries in Asia. So could Canada doing its part actually make a difference to the global carbon dioxide emissions and make Canadian weather better. I, I try to deal with that argument that argument in different ways. I mean, part of it is is a, a question of history. You know, I mean, it, the the governments of the world have been meeting regularly since about 1992. Yeah. Uh, to try to develop diplomatically a um, a series of, of measures and agreements that will will reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and despite and we've now had twenty seven of the conferences of the parties, all dedicated to that goal. Um, as a result, uh, up to twenty twenty, global greenhouse gas emissions increased by sixty percent. So, despite all of that effort, it was increased by sixty percent. And on the basis of, of the current market conditions, and I, I, I study this and watch it very closely, there's no sign that, that global emissions are declining. They're continuing to rise. And all of the most authoritative uh, sources of projections of uh, economic and activity, energy consumption and emissions, all project emissions to continue to grow right through to 2050. Um, every single one of the credible ones. So, um, on the basis of the history and, and and all of the most credible projections, there's no basis for believing that global emissions are going to decline. Um, there's going to be between now and, and 2050, there will be 2 billion more people in the world. The people in the developing countries will virtually double their incomes over that period compared to where they are today. How does that equate to reduced emissions? It's just, it's, it's just not, it's not feasible. And so um, that's, that's one part of the story. The other part of the story is the one that we touched on a little bit earlier, which is that um, the developing countries have stated uh, that for them, in, increasing the uh, incomes and standard of living of their people is more important than reducing emissions. Yeah. And therefore they will only uh, participate in ways that the United Nations is demanding if the uh, wealthier countries provide the, the technology and the funding for them to do so. 
and they've estimated that the, the cost of that is about $2 trillion per year, not counting um, <laughs> what they call reparations for loss and damages. That is the, you know, the, the emissions that the countries of the world, the wealthier countries um, had uh, while they were industrializing. Well, there, and there's no possible way that those demands will be met. So, um, in other words, what Canada does, what the UK does, what the United States does, what all, what all of the OECD does in terms of emissions reduction is not going to uh, come anywhere close to um, attaining the goals that the United Nations has stated in terms of, you know, net zero. It's all, it's, it's, it's grand fiction. Um, it, it's, it's hard to can persuade people about that because by and large, the media never reports on this, right? I mean, what I've just said is not, where do you read that? But Yeah, exactly. It. Yeah. And it's interesting because I just got an email today um, that there's this media group that's going to be providing a briefing next week on potential uh, misinf climate misinformation and disinformation narratives that might crop up around the, the latest Conference of the Parties meeting, COP28, that's taking place um, in the Middle East. And I was thinking what you just said would probably be classified as climate uh, misinformation or something, um, which is sad that we're at that state. So all that being said, what do you think is the best way forward for Canada and Canadians? Oh, that's a very that's a very difficult question. Obviously, I, I mean, I what I I don't know what the path back to um, a more um, balanced uh, climate policy is. I, I do know that. The, the politics of the situation are such that there are still a very large number of people that uh, believe the thesis that uh, the world is uh, going to be threatened by uh, human-induced in, uh, emissions and that therefore something needs to be done. Even if you just put it in terms, you know, the, the risks are there, we need to take a quote precautionary approach, unquote. And, and given those numbers, it's uh, almost impossible for um, a political party credibly to say, well, we're that's not right, quite right, and we're not going to do anything. I, I think we're in a situation where um, the Conservative Party, which is the only uh, credible alternative to the current Liberal New Democratic Party uh, alliance, uh, they they will have to approach climate policy with a view to offering something that is clearly seen to be uh, responsive to people's concerns. Um, and ideally, uh, what they would do is one to take a policy that, that is evidence-based. You know, go back, it's really hard to argue, you know, that, that policy should be evidence-based, but, but that's a good place to start. So it should be evidence-based and um, there should be a much heavier emphasis upon climate policies that are related to, to adaptation than to mitigation. Yeah. Because um, any the climate is, is always moved, always changing, uh, regardless of what causes it. And there's quite no question that when you invest in, in the capacity of your economy and your, your society to be more resilient and flexible, 
it's a good investment. So I think that's a that's a very important theme to stress in terms of the, the policies going forward. Um, I, I I I don't know how to get to that point though because. Um, Politicians in Canada are really intimidated by the climate of fear that has been established by 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 a climate what I call climate alarmists, if you will, or climate activists, and so they're uh, they're going to they're going to step lightly, and they're they're it will take a very large, well-informed grassroots organization of people uh, who are uh, committed to coming up with a, a more responsible climate policy uh, before we're going to be able to, to get uh, get a change. Um, now, mind you, uh, that as we, we started talking out about uh, you know, how what what a remarkable impact um, has has been the uh, the reaction to uh, one group of people getting a, a break on their on their carbon taxes for home heating oil. Uh, who'd have known? Who would have thought that 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 could bring about a significant change? Um, it's possible there'll be more things that come out of the blue like that, uh, but I, I think we'd be we'd be wiser to try to find a more uh, prudent basis back to a, a, a public policy that is weighs properly the, as I say, economic, social, and environmental goals. That's a really good point about the environmental goals because there seems to be this conflation between climate and environment. Because mm -hmm. I think if there's an emphasis on, we need to make sure there's clean air, we need to right. make sure that th there's clean water, that we need to make sure that the land is healthy, those are very different than the focus on climate. But everything is sort of mixed into this climate lens that we yeah. lose sight of the things that are actually important to Canadians. Canadians care about clean air. They care about clean water. They want to make sure that their that their land and their soil is healthy. And then the other element that you talk about adaptation, um, what happened to us being prepared for disasters? It's not like Canada's never faced a tornado or an earthquake or um, storms of whatever magnitude there's been floods in bc and ontario and quebec for ages there's been ice storms there's been all of these other things so it's not nothing new and you know as you talk about adaptation then we should be preparing for more of those or even if there isn't more but to be prepared in general um i i think that there's this um this idea that Everything's new, never happened before. We're mm. caught flat-footed. Where it's like, what's happened to governments that they're that they haven't been thinking and preparing for typical natural disasters that have always happened in Canada? Uh, well, that's right. I mean, I really do like the point that you made about um, uh, any new climate policy is going to have to be one that is focused on the environment as a goal, not just emissions reduction as a goal. That, that right. is absolutely. Absolutely central um, to what to finding a way to something that is appeals to the public. Um, as to the you know the you know the, the issue of being respond you know, uh, resilient in, in, in every aspect of your economy and ready to deal with the, the things that you don't necessarily anticipate but but come along. Um, it's remarkable uh, how 
little attention to, is paid to that. Uh, I, my son lives in Yellowknife, and uh, they had to cope with you know the evacuation because of the forest fires. Well, and and and, they, and truly, this was an unusual year in terms of the the nature and extent ferocity of the forest fires in Canada. But it's not like we don't have forest fires. We have forest fires every single year, yeah. and we have we have significantly underinvested in our capacity to deal with forest fires. So when a really an unusual year comes along, guess what? You know, you, you get something that is, that is considered almost a national crisis and it gets blamed on the climate. Well, you know, we, the, the it, it's all part of, if you will, of being a, a kind of a more um, responsive uh, and uh, uh, issue focused uh, approach to governing rather than being one that's driven by by a single-minded uh, goal, and uh, I hope I hope we get there. I do too. I hope it's before we hit the wall, as you said <laughs> in your presentation. Well, thank you, Bob, so much for taking the time to speak with me today, and I, I love your insights. And um, in the description, I'm going to put links to the presentation and some of your other publications. And um, I hope people check them out because it's. What you have to say is worth hearing. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for your very insightful questions. You really made me work for this. <laughs> and, I, and I enjoyed it. You thought it, it was going to be easy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Bye. -bye now. Bye.